I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to do something a little different. We're going to divert uh, once again from our uh, study of Hebrews. Uh, there is a reason behind that. It's a, it's a very uh, pragmatic uh, reason uh, as well as one that I also think is, uh, well, they're both pragmatic reasons. One's a good pragmatic and the other one is just purely pragmatic. The purely pragmatic is uh, I prepare for a snow day each winter. In other words, when I prepare the preaching schedule and it says Camper shares in this and he's assigned the text he's going to do and Preston or some other get, get assigned, if it snows, it messes everybody up for months to come. So I put one day in just in case it snows. Although yesterday I was wondering if we we're going to get snowed out of the snow day. But, um, and so that way we get messed up if it snows at some point. We get messed up to this point on the calendar and then we can pick up where we normally are. And uh, there'll be a reason, the reason I picked this time in the calendar, not only is it kind of a midway point, uh, but because I believe this is a time of great, uh, great uh, opportunity to turn our attention to an important topic of God's great commission and our involvement in global missions uh, for a reason that we will see in just a moment. Our text this morning is an expression of that great commission. Uh, we see in Matthew chapter uh, 9, verses 37 through 38, uh, for the sake of context, I'll begin the reading in verse 35. Hear the word of our God. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. The word of our God. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father, as we come, we pray that you would speak to us by this word. For some of us, it will be a, a reminder. For others, it will be instruction. But regardless of where we are, based on how we have been prepared to this point, I pray that you, in accordance with your promise, would speak to us by this word. That you would renew us, not only in heart and mind, uh, but in uh, the orientation of our lives. That you would empower us, equip us. You would enable us to see uh, not only what you reveal to us in the text, but see the world around us uh, the way that you see. Lord, we pray all of these things. Uh, praying that for you to be at work with great confidence because you have promised that your word will continually be at work shaping a people and knitting us together until all reach full maturity in Christ. And so we pray that you would do that in part today, this time. To you be all praise and glory in your church and throughout the world. Amen. Well, as Tim so subtly alluded to uh, this week, uh, you will see on Thursday will be St. Patrick's Day. It's a day that each year that people always all around us will wear green. Everyone seems to think they are Irish and for some reason craves either shamrock shakes or green beer. I haven't figured that one out. Why do the people do all of that? Well, the obvious answer is because it's St. Patrick's Day. Everybody participates. Everybody is Irish. But why would we set that? Every culture, every tradition, every people has somebody who was significant in their culture. Why does everybody in our culture embrace this day, participate in this day, even when they have absolutely no Irish heritage or blood in, in them? Well, the reason is because it's the story of Patrick. 
People know that, but what they don't really know, as a large, uh, by and large, is the story of Patrick. So there's a couple of things that we need to dissuade you uh, of. First of all, Patrick was not a leprechaun. And so that, just to get that clear. In fact, much to Tim's chagrin, Patrick was not even Irish. Most people don't even know that. Patrick was born in part of, of Great Britain that was near the Scottish border. He was born into an aristocratic family, uh, and yet a godly family, a family that was committed to the gospel, uh, committed to raising their children and, and, uh, uh, in, the, in the faith, uh, and honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. So Patrick grew up like a, a lot of kids, a lot of our kids, one who would essentially, if, we'd have, if they had the structure, would have gone to Sunday school, would have uh, gone to VBS and learned the, the, the things, the truths of our faith. And yet, like we see a lot of times in our churches that uh, in that growing period, uh, not necessarily one who is embracing these things. Patrick was, by all accounts, to be essentially a, what we would call a, a, a normal boy, interested in all sorts of different things. Uh, but at least in the early parts of his life, he was not so much interested in the spiritual things that his parents were trying to press uh, upon him. At the age of 16, he was out and about, uh, and he was kidnapped by a band of pirates. Pirates took him and sold him into slavery to some wealthy people that were living in Ireland. And for the next five years, serving as a, a slave, his job was to be a shepherd overseeing the, the sheep of, of the one who was his captor. Day in, day out, he was in the fields tending the sheep and doing whatever else that the, the shepherds do. And in this time, he had a lot of time to be thinking, thinking of home and missing it thinking of the faith that his parents had tried to impress upon him while he was growing up. Out in creation, seeing the beauty of God's creation, having time to think, he developed and cultivated a, a, a significant prayer life. And he spoke regularly to God and gained great insights in terms of just how majestic and how worthy God is of being worshipped and honored and praised. Somewhere after his sixth year in captivity, he was able to escape. He returned home to his family in Britain, but he wasn't the same. He wasn't the same kind of aimless young teenager. He was now 20 years old and focused, committing his life to the Lord and committing his life to ministry to the Lord. And even more than that, he had developed not only a love for God, but he had developed a love for the very people who had held him as a, a slave. And so he came back with a renewed commitment to serve God, but with a great vision that he would one day return to the people who had enslaved him and take the gospel of Jesus Christ to this pagan people. Now, what people don't really know, unless you're a student of, of history, is that the people that lived in Ireland at that point, that was a rough crew. Now, the other thing people don't know about Patrick is Patrick was not part of the Roman Catholic Church. Never in his lifetime was he part of the Roman Catholic Church. He was part of the British Church. The British church was not under Rome. It was distinct. It was a distinct entity. That was the tradition to which Patrick was involved in. And at that time, Ireland had, the Roman church had no influence in Ireland. Because as the Romans went, whether the church or, 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 or even the, the Roman uh, uh, leaders before the church had great influence, they got to Ireland, they saw these people, and said, these people are nuts. It just isn't worth it. And so they just let them because they were just so wild and so rugged and so independent, trying to subdue and to tame it. They just decided it wasn't, wasn't worth the while. And so they, they left. And yet Patrick 
having convinced the British church that this is what his calling would be, they sent him there. He went there. He invested his life in the people, and he lived there for, uh, for a few uh, decades, day in and day out, praying for, day in and day out, sharing the hope of the gospel that had saved him, that he had hoped would save these people. And it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy uh, throughout. It'd be you know, easy to write a short uh, story that he went back and such a magnanimous gesture of going back to people who had once enslaved him. They were readily responsive and therefore revival broke out right away. We don't really know much about the early days of Patrick's labor. We don't know if it took him a while to get any converts or any traction uh, in his ministry. We do know that he lived with uh, frequent uh, threats and perhaps even uh, reason to fear for his own life uh, because the nation was pagan and the Druids didn't like this idea of somebody coming and, and teaching about a one God when it was not uh, the deity who they themselves uh, were worshiping. And so because of their, their wildness and, and their viciousness, they not only threatened, but they threatened to attack and even take Patrick's life. In Patrick's own writing, he wrote this, Daily, I expect to be murdered or betrayed or reduced to slavery if the occasion arises. But I fear nothing because of the promises of heaven. He endured. And though we don't know exactly when Patrick died, tradition says that he, he died on March the 17th in the latter half of the 5th century. Patrick was born in the, uh, the, the, the late part of, of, the, of the 4th century. And so in the, the 30 to 40 years that he uh, served uh, in, in Ireland and ministered the sake, for the sake of the gospel, he led thousands of Irish pagans to Christ. He was responsible for Ireland becoming one of the most Christian nations in Europe one of the most Christianized nations in the world, even by the time of his death. The influence that he had continued on as others came in. The Roman church came in and, and uh, continued to, um, to teach uh, of Jesus. And Ireland has had a long history of being identified as being a Christian nation. Not necessarily as healthy as it was at one time. There's a need for Ireland to be, uh, to be re green again, uh, but nevertheless, through the story of Patrick, we see the power of God at work in an otherwise ordinary guy in an extraordinary way that tamed a nation, that saved a nation, that influenced the world. This is the story of Patrick. But as extraordinary as Patrick's story is, one who was gripped by the call of the gospel and compelled by the invitation and, and the call to the Great Commission. His story is not his story alone. The fruit and the actions may be, but the call is out to all who are followers of Jesus Christ. The Anglican missionary from the 18th century named Henry Martin said this, the spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. The nearer we get to Christ, the more intensely missionary we become. And I believe he's right, because the whole essence of that is Jesus Christ is, was sent by the Father because God, in his very nature, is a missionary God. He is on a rescue mission to redeem a people who have plunged ourselves into ruin because of our own sin. And Jesus Christ was sent for that renewal, 
that rescue mission. He was the one who would save. And all who are his followers are those who have benefited from his rescue mission. Each one of us is the beneficiary of Jesus Christ coming on a rescue mission and then com then having his followers that went out into the nations and also participated in the mission of God. We're the beneficiaries because of through them and because of through their faithfulness to the call that was on their lives, we are able to hear the gospel, come to faith in Christ, and then pass it on not only to our children, but to our neighbors and ultimately to the nations. To be engaged in mission is inherently Christian. We'll put it another way. The other way around is to be Christian is to be inherently on mission for God. They are inseparable. Now, the word that we use a lot of times to refer to uh, missions is the Great Commission. And there are a number of passages in the scriptures that refer to the Great Commission. Most notably, people think about Matthew 28, go into all nations, make disciples, uh, baptizing them, uh, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. What a lot of people don't recognize, even some Bible students, is that every gospel has at least one Great Commission passage. Luke's is a little bit different. It's a declaration that repentance and faith will be proclaimed to all nations. And so there you see the message is going to be coined. People are aware of the reality of their own sin, need to repent of that. And then the hope of the gospel is what we put our faith into. But what is also notable about that is just the absolute assurance. Where Matthew is an instruction, here's what you want to do. Luke, when, he, when Jesus is speaking and Luke records it, it it's almost like it, it, it's already done. Jesus said, this is going to happen. This message is going to be proclaimed to all nations. Uh, John recording one of Jesus' teaching is one of the ones that resonates with me the most because not only do we see the commission, but we see the model. Jesus says, just as the Father has sent me, so now I'm sending you. And so that begs of us to say, okay, well, how did the Father send Jesus? Well, he sent him in the flesh. He became part one of us and then living among us, lived to the obedience of God, to, to the glory of God, then sharing the hope of what he would do through his death and his resurrection. And then we are the beneficiaries of it. And Jesus said, okay, the Father sent me, now I'm sending you. We don't necessarily die, although many who do serve and, and go to different places are under threat of death. But there is a very real call to, to missions to saying, to be faithful, follower of Jesus Christ, requires that we go in person, in the flesh, among somebody, some people, somewhere that we would invest our lives in their lives, that they might see how Christ has given life to us. There is no substitute for being active. Even in the book of Acts, we see in Acts 1-8, there's kind of a strategic aspect of the Great Commission. Jesus says that they were just remain in Jerusalem until a later time. But there were going to be witnesses, first in their own city, in Jerusalem, and then to the areas outside, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth all throughout that. And if you go look in the of Scripture, you see the Great Commission actually doesn't even begin at the in Jesus' ministry. If you go back to the call of Abram and the covenant that God established with him, there's a hint or a foreshadow of the Great Commission to come. Because God said to Abram when he called him, I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless the nations through you. Now ultimately it's because it was through the line of Abraham that Jesus would be born and all the nations would be blessed as the gospel was proclaimed to them and they believe in him and they are saved from their own sin, redeemed and brought into the family of God. But it was also the commission of Abram's descendants, the family, Israel, and then the church to be a blessing to the nations around them. 
that was inherent to the character of the community that God is calling together in that covenant. The covenant relationship with God is, at least implicitly, and I believe explicitly, a call to live to the glory of God by loving others, by giving our lives to them. And the passage we have before us is one of those great commission passages. In this passage, we see the heart that our God has for people who are wandering and who are hopeless and helpless in a world uh, that is difficult to navigate. As, as we look at the passage, we see Jesus had gone into each of the cities, each of the towns, and he was proclaimed to them uh, the word. He met their physical needs as they, they uh, as were told that he performed miracles, and he brought healing and healed their afflictions. He was, and, and as he engaged these people, as he looked at these people, we're told he had compassion. His heart went out for them, which is the very reason that God sent him in the first place. And so Jesus in the flesh, representing or uh, reflecting God the Father, we see that he has compassion on us, on people, on people who not just gather together and behave in a particular way, but he has compassion on a people who are trying to just navigate their way in this world and are blown around with whatever trends and whatever spirit of the age there might be. Because Jesus described them as, you know, I have compassion because they're like sheep that don't have a shepherd. Jesus had come to be that shepherd. And so then he turns his attention back to his disciples without losing sight of the people who are wandering in this world without hope, without knowing God. And he says to those who are his followers, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. In other words, to reach the whole world, it was going to take a number of people to go to the world, to take the message of the gospel to them. And, and so Jesus is identifying the opportunity as well as, as the difficulty. And then he gives them an instruction. So pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up, to send out workers that will go into the harvest fields. Now, when I look at this passage, I, I can look at it in three different ways, and, and we're going to I'm going to apply that for us today. But first we need to recognize that Jesus is making them aware. He's making them aware that there is a harvest and, and what the harvest is like. The second is he is demonstrating to them the importance of intentionality. This is not just something to do on your side. He's not just saying, hey, if you have time, if you have no, nothing else to do, you know, it might be a good idea to remember these people. He gives them an instruction that he expects them to do. And then the third thing that we see is that he invites them to be participants in this mission that he is engaged on, this harvest that he is, uh, that he is intending to reap of the people and of the souls from among all of the nations. So, so we look at that. Let's, let's begin with what is the being of awareness. Jesus wants us to be aware that there is a task. That is the Great Commission. There are people to be reached. And he says that the harvest is great. This is a reminder to us that there's a tremendous number of people out there who have never heard the gospel, many of whom have never even had the opportunity to hear the gospel. And Jesus says that he has sheep who belong to this fold. He says this in, in, in John chapter 10. He has sheep who belong, but they're not yet in the fold. The only way they're going to get in the fold is if somebody who is raised up will go and, and proclaim the gospel to them. That's the task of the church, and not only to a select few, 
But the entire church, we see throughout the scriptures that the entire church, and part of being part of the church, is, is a commissioned body to labor together for the sake of the advancement of the gospel, both where they are and ultimately to reach the ends of the earth. And so Jesus wants us to be aware that there is a task to be done. And the church has been about that task for, uh, for, uh, for 2,000 years. But part of our awareness also must include being aware of how we're doing and what's left to be done. Now, for us to evaluate that, I'm going to give uh, kind of kind of shift more into kind of a, a lecture mode, or if, I think I shifted there a while ago. But anyway, um, but how do we how do we how do we gauge that? When the late 60s, early 1970s, there was a, a missiologist uh, named uh, Ralph Winter, who was the founder and director of the U.S. Center for World Missions. He began using a metric that he felt was more faithful, and I, and I believe that he, he was right, more faithful to what the Great Commission is actually calling us to do than simply making sure we have a missionary in every continent or a missionary in every country. Recognizing that the Great Commission, particularly as Matthew says, that we're going to go to all nations, and the word that's translated nations is ethnos, which means all peoples. He developed an idea that's called people groups. See, throughout the world, in, in every culture, in every geographic country, there are distinct tribes or distinct entities of people. Sometimes there's overlap, sometimes they are more remote, but there are certain sociological characteristics. Sometimes they are, are physical, sometimes it's just language, sometimes uh, it's, it's sociological, whatever those characteristics. But it, 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 the short aspect of it is, there are certain characteristics that make uh, the difference between what makes us us and, and the other people thems. And everybody seems to know them, at least within that culture. They identify within their own tribe, within their own people group. And the Great Commission is not just simply to plant a flag, as like the astronauts did on the moon, and say, we've been there and we've conquered it, but it is to reach people from every tribe and every tongue that are within every nation. And so the idea of people groups, Winter broke up the total number of people groups that they were able to identify, and how many of those people groups have been reached and how many of those people groups are unreached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, to understand the difference, the measure as what does it mean to be reached, the, the general consensus of missiologists is this, that a, a, a people group is considered to be a reached people if less than, an unreached people, excuse me, it's unreached if there are less than 5% of the total population that identifies in some way with Christianity, that makes some level of profession of faith. And in that same community, that's less than 2%, which would have what they call them evangelical characteristics. Evangelical in its real meaning, not the way it has been hijacked and used as a political action committee in our culture. Evangelical meaning, believing the gospel, believing the necessity of a personal faith in Jesus Christ, believing in his death and his resurrection, and putting, our, and putting their hope in that. And, and so a people group that is unreached is one that less than 5% of the people claim any identification with Christianity, and then 2% or, or less than 2% of them would be able to claim that they have a personal faith in Jesus Christ himself. Now, sociologists and missiologists tell us that there are... Um, 74, I'm sorry, there are 17,440 people groups that are identified in the world. And of those people groups, there are 7,414 that are considered unreached. 
So in one sense, it should be very encouraging. Of the 7,000 plus groups, 10, you know, more than 10,000 of them have are reached. There is a gospel presence. There is a established church that is able to sustain itself, who is able to minister not only to the believers, but to minister to their neighbors and to their community. And, and so there's been a tremendous advancement of the gospel. But there are still over 7,400 people groups who are unreached. Now, some of them are closer to being reached than others. In some of those people groups, the, the numbers are less than 5% professing and 2% with a, an evangelical faith. Um, but maybe it's 4% of the people are professing and 1.5% of the people with an evangelical faith. In other words, the church is present and the church is growing. It's just not strong enough to sustain itself. And, and yet there's other places where the gospel has never even been. There is no scripture in their language. There is no missionary in their language. There are no known Christians among those people. All of them need to be reached. There's work still to be done. God has been at work through his church in, in faithfulness, which should give us encouragement. But you and I, as those who are part of the church, need to be aware this is a job that God has called us to participate in. This is inseparable to being a follower of Jesus Christ, and there is work to be done. That is the task at his hand. These people tend to live, for the most part, in a particular geographical area in the world. Now, there's people all over the world that are in need of the gospel and to coming in faith in Jesus Christ. Our neighbors, our family members, perhaps even some who are here this morning that are wrestling and, and, and searching for something have not yet come to that point where you're trusting in Jesus Christ. And all of us need that. But the vast majority of the unreached peoples of the world live in an area that missiologists call the 1040 window. Now, for many of you, that's a familiar phrase, but just so that we're all kind of on the same page, we want to make sure that we understand kind of not only what the task is, but we're aware of where the job needs to be done. The 1040 window gets its name from a, a, a rectangular area from roughly 10 degrees north of the equator to 40 degrees north of the equator. And, and it encompasses uh, a large part of North Africa, uh, the entirety of the Middle East, and a significant, if uh, really the most part of Asia. Two thirds of the world's population lives in that 1040 window. The most significant impoverished peoples in the world live inside that 1040 window. The greatest hostility to the gospel is in that 1040 window. It is the home also of some of the world's largest religions that are opposed to Christianity. The vast majority of Muslims, the vast majority of Hindus, the vast majority of Buddhists live within the 1040 window. And so the people groups are out there. We know where they are. Jesus is calling the people to go and reach them. Now, before we move on, there's another thing that we need to know, to be aware of, about this commission that we are called to engage in. One of the things we're going to look at is the importance of praying to the Lord to raise up those who will go into the mission field. And there are many, many missionaries, and that is wonderful. But statistically speaking, 
of every 30 missionaries who are raised up, only one goes to the unreached people groups of the world. 29 and 30, 29 of 30 missionaries go to the reached peoples. They go where the gospel already exists. They go and they labor where the gospel, in many cases, is already prospering. Do you know there are more missionaries to the state of Alaska than there are to the entire Muslim world? It's not that they shouldn't be there or shouldn't be here and be around us. But sometimes we need to step back and say, well, what, what's left to be done? When I asked my boys when they lived in our home to go rake the backyard and I catch them periodically just kind of run or rake where it had already been raked, I would mention to them that they might want to put their energies someplace else. And I suspect that would also be true of the church. I don't know what the right number is. I don't know that it needs to be the majority of them are going to the 1040 window and going to the unreached people groups because people that are on missionaries are doing any number of jobs and it's necessary. But I do suspect this. I do wonder if the church as it exists, let's just say particularly in the United States, a church like our church, if we each would do what we are called to do as followers of Jesus Christ, I wonder how many of those missionaries among us are still necessary and how many we might be able to free up to be supported and be sent someplace else where people don't have the resources and the ability and the strength to care for themselves. And so Jesus says the harvest is great and he does this because he wants them, he wants us to be aware, aware of what's out there and aware of the tasks that we have. And then he gives them this instruction, which is where I say it's an intentionality. Pray earnestly, which earnestly is an important word there. It's not just, hey, as you think about it, throw a prayer up every once in a while. Pray earnestly, which is an intentional, consistent prayer. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up people. It's essentially praying for the gospel to be advanced to places where it's not presently advanced. The idea of participating in global mission, the idea of participating in the Great Commission, is not an add-on that came as Jesus was getting ready to ascend and say, oh, by the way, all the stuff I taught you, it would be really nice if you shared it with somebody else. Everyone he encountered was part of the process. It's like a huge wave that he's picking up. Those who get part, caught up in the wave through faith and belong to him, they are now part of that, and they are to go and take that to other people. And so therefore, we as Christians need to ask ourselves, are we engaged in the Great Commission? And to what extent are we engaged in the Great Commission? Are we even aware? that we are to be engaged in the Great Commission as individuals. Because Jesus is teaching his and every other Great Commission thing, there's an intentionality that's involved in it. Those who are followers of Christ are called to participate in the Great Commission. It's been said that as far as the Great Commission goes, or three kinds of Christians when it comes to world missions, there are the zealous goers, there are the zealous senders, and there are the disobedient. And while that's a little bit harsh, I do also think it's accurate as well. Because there's, an, there's a reason that Jesus makes his disciples aware of the harvest. There's a reason that he enlists them to be intentional about the harvest. And that is so that we see, lastly, that those who have been reached become intentional about participating in the harvest. Specifically here we see Jesus saying, Pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers. And so the first thing that we see in our participation is the importance of prayer. 
prayer is not a perfunctory thing that you put on the beginning of a meeting or that you just kind of do to, to cap it off and say, okay, now we're going to do the work and you know, we want God to kind of bless it or we don't want us to get into something. In a very real way, prayer is the work. When we pray, we are acknowledging that God is going to do something that we ourselves cannot do. When we pray, we ask that God would do something in us that we in our own strength and our own talents, our own abilities cannot do. It is God who is on mission. It is God who is going to accomplish the mission. It is God who must reach people. It's God who must open the minds and the hearts. And it's God who we are proclaiming in the person of Jesus Christ who is going to save a people. We are participants, but it is God who is on mission and who will accomplish it. And so our prayer is a participation because we're engaging with God on his mission. I love the way John Piper puts the importance of prayer, particularly as it is, uh, pertains to this whole idea of participating in the Great Commission. Listen to what he says. I've been impressed more than ever before that God has given us prayer, not as an intercom for increased convenience in our secluded cottages, but as a walkie-talkie connecting the general's headquarters with a transportation line and the field hospital and the frontline artillery. Prayer is not a bell to call the servants to satisfy some desire we happen to feel. It's a battlefield transmitter for staying in touch with the general. And what he's saying to us here in the imagery, and it's, you know, prayer is also the, it's the love language, the communication aspect of a loving relationship we have with God. But so often in our church prayer meetings and our church prayer lists, as one missionary, Jack Miller, has said is, we degenerate to praying nothing but the sick lists. And then Miller went on and said, sometimes Christians seem to spend more time praying to keep the saints out of heaven than they do to get the lost in. And it's not that physical needs and we shouldn't be praying for one another's burdens. Absolutely, it's part of bearing one another's burdens. But when our prayer life degenerates into, Lord, I need this. Lord, deliver me. Lord, heal me. Or my favorite is traveling mercies for my aunt's next door neighbor and whatever else. Well, you know, it's like, okay, well, I guess that's important and somebody loves her. I don't know who she is, so I mean, it's really not going to be passionate. But we bring this in, and, and it's what Piper's kind of talking about. It's not, it's, it's not the intercom that we press so that we have convenience. Part of the purpose of prayer is so that we would be connected with God who's on mission, connected with the general. So that not only are we communicating with him of our own experience that he might empower us, but that we would hear from him what it is that he wants us to do, which is how he empowers us. And so you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you are invited, in fact, you're commanded to pray to the Lord of the harvest. And here specifically, one of the ways that we are to pray is that we pray for the Lord to raise up people that are willing to go and to serve. And I would challenge and invite every one of you to do that. Our church has a wonderful history of people who have been raised up and have gone out. We need to continually pray, not just assume that, but pray that the Lord would continue and maybe even increase that. That he would call the people from our church who would go to the nations, taking the hope of the gospel. And I think that's something that we need to commit ourselves to be praying for. But while we're praying for the Lord to raise up people who would go, I also think we need to take 
a look at another prayer that was offered through the Old Testament, and that is of Isaiah. And when faced with the glory of the Lord and the need of the people, he said, here I am, Lord, send me. See, it's one thing to pray a very general thing, Lord, raise somebody up. Oh, did you mean me? Uh, no, that's not going to happen. I mean, that's... Uh... But it's really true that God loves you more than you love yourself and certainly healthier, and he only is going to work out good for you. What would you have to be afraid of? Why would you not pray? Now, if it's because you don't think you have anything to contribute, then I can encourage you. Because of the work of missions, pretty much any job is necessary. It's not all about the preaching or the translation. Those are necessary as well. But whatever job is necessary to go to different parts of the world, to use your skills and your abilities, and then to engage a people and to love them in a way that you've been loved by Jesus, and then give reason for the hope that you have, there is no one who is disqualified because of the profession that you have from engaging in missions. You can be used. So that's the hesitancy that you just thought, well, I don't know what I would do. We've just removed that. Ron Paul will be after, available after the service to prepare you for your new career. Uh, no, um, I'm sort of joking, but it's one of those that's sort of true as well. Um, but even as we pray for the Lord of the harvest, we're also praying to the Lord for those who are already in the harvest. Those who labor have a difficult task. They need our prayers. This is part of our participation. See, when we participate, it's not just those who go. Those who don't aren't called to go are those who send. And by senders, it's not just a check and an occasional prayer. There's a need for ongoing prayer. I've used the analogy, and I'll use it again because I don't know of a better one. But we are, as the church, mission control to NASA. Only a few went into space. Only a few have ever walked on the moon. But they would never have gotten there if there wasn't an army of other people doing specific things, some more visible than others, but taking care of all of those things so that they would be able to accomplish their mission and get back as well. While we're praying for the Lord of the harvest, we pray for those who have gone out because their mission is difficult. That's part of being a sinner. That's part of, of supporting them. I don't know if you think about it, but the, what they do, they go one, they leave everything behind. They go someplace, not because it's a sacrifice, but because of the great opportunity. But it's tough, especially if you're going to an unreached people group. The greatest discouragement the missionaries have is lack of evident fruit, trying to communicate that back to the churches, especially here in America, where, you know, success is the only measure of, of God's favor. And then the tension that comes between other team members, and then sometimes it's difficult on marriages. They need our help. Just to understand the frustration, let me put it this way. If, you, if your job involves sales in any way, think what it would be like if you went two, three years with only one sale or no sales at all. Missionaries going to pioneer areas, they labor faithfully, and it could be a couple of years before they see anything. 
if you're in the construction business, whether you're a builder or you're a carpenter or whatever, just imagine that you know you haven't had a home to build in two or three years. What does that do to you on inside emotionally? And then as you start feeling badly about yourself, then sometimes there creates tension in the relationships. Just our missionaries that are going are in need of your care and of your support. And many of them are afraid to get real with churches back home because we look at it through American. If you're any good, you'll bear fruit. I have no idea of the history of Patrick. I don't know whether he had immediate uh, or not, but my guess is he went and labored, and it was probably a while before he got much traction in his mission. But his faithfulness over time and God's blessing that breaks in the heart and renews it. And we participate with our missionaries, those who have been raised up as they go. We can also be praying for the field itself. Pray for the countries, pray for the people groups, pray that their hearts would be prepared by God to hear, to recognize their own need and the good news that Jesus of Jesus that is being brought to them by the missionaries. We are participants, whether we go or whether we are senders. And even the whole idea of participating as the goers, while some need to go, remembering in Acts that mission takes place even at home. And we happen to live in a context where those who are from some of the closed countries are coming into our backyard. Consider your participation with the Afghan refugees that are coming to Newport News. I suspect that we'll be seeing some Ukrainian refugees, not from an unreached culture and people group, but people in need of the gospel. There is no limitation. And so as I look at this passage, my, my goal today is I want us all to be aware. I want us a church to be constantly aware. I want us to be a church that is intentional and always intentional about engagement and mission. And I want us to be a church, a people, who are not just on the sidelines that send a check once in a while, but that we are participants, either as goers or as senders. That we might experience the joy that drove Patrick and every other missionary who has borne fruit, most of whom will never know their names. God is on a mission. And he's called his people to be participants so that those who have never heard have opportunity to hear. And so I'm just going to finish with the words of the Apostle Paul as he wrote to the Roman church on this very issue. He begins with this promise that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's our longing. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have never heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. By God's grace, let it be us. Let us play a part. Father, we give thanks to you this day. We pray that you would be at work within us. For some, I pray, they are encouraged. For others, I pray that they be pricked in the heart. And for all of us, Lord, help us to know that we have a purpose that is greater than ourselves and greater than our comfort. It is your glory and the good of the nations, the same good that we are the beneficiaries of. Lord, use us, send us, that your name may be praised by people from every tribe and tongue and nation. 
This is our prayer through Christ. Amen.